I want to meet you tonight in the Gospel of Mark. I want to minister tonight for a few minutes on a simple title, the kind of title that I hope draws some people. I don't like to, to think of it in marketing terms, but it's a click society, right? We stream and we watch stuff. Titles kind of do that. Um, if someone comes looking for the kindness of God, that's what this one's going to be titled. The kindness of God, uh, a phrase that I'll be honest with you, I did not hear in my first couple of decades in the church. In fact, my first few decades in the church, I didn't hear sermons on the kind God. Um, I know that God's kindness is a thing because the Bible talks about it, but no one preached much of it to me. Um, I don't know what kind of environments you were raised in, but I knew that God was love and I knew that God was kind, but I didn't think it was supposed to be preached about because when I heard God preached, he was mad. He was getting mad. He was a judge. He had vengeance. He had smoke coming out of his nostrils. And I mean, literally, that was how he was presented. And he had a, he had a standard and you were probably not living up to it and you needed to start. And, um, it's been a wonderful and refreshing revelation in my adult life to meet the kind God and to realize that he was the God I had always known, but I had seen him through so many other people's lenses that I had to have an absolute washing of my own eyes spiritually to see him as he really is. And it started when I started to replace looking for God with looking for Jesus. And as I looked for Jesus and allowed that to become my picture of God, my picture of God began to change. So from the very outset, I'd like to encourage you or anyone watching or listening, I want to challenge you. If you're struggling with the very title, the kindness of God, you go, I don't know that God is that way. Maybe God has that quality, but that's not God's, sal that's not God's predominant feature. I would challenge you. I would dare you to start to look at Jesus as if you're looking at God and see if you can find kindness in Jesus. And instantly, you know it's going to be easier, right? It's easier. You go, oh, it's much easier to find kindness. If you'd titled your sermon, The Kindness of Jesus, well, I wouldn't have any issue with that. But my point is that we should have always been looking at Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. Christ Jesus, the anointed one, the resurrected one, is our Savior. So when I talk about the kindness of God tonight, I'm going to show you Jesus. Because you might be saying, well, this is going to be a sermon. Why are we in Mark? We need to be in the Old Testament. You're going to talk the kindness of God. You're going to try to show me how God was kind in the Old Testament. How are you going to do that? Well, I want to show you Jesus. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. I didn't make that statement up. I'm quoting Jesus. <laughs> so when you see Jesus, you see what God looks like. And if you have any problem seeing Jesus as kind, I would challenge you to reread the Gospels. I can understand if you've lived in certain passages of the Old Testament that you might sit here and go, boy, I have trouble seeing God as only kind. But if you go look at Jesus and Jesus says, this is what my dad always looked like. This is who he always was. Well, then that tells me I should have always been looking at Jesus. Now, we're going to do a little bit of Bible study tonight. Bible study means we move around a little bit in the Bible. And I don't want to exhaust you on it, um, but I do want to jump for a, I want to move a little bit um, because you're beyond the ABCs. You are. 
you are beyond just foundational in your understanding of the Bible. You are capable of making connections. And so we're going to make a few connections. And one of those is to do a little comparative to gospel accounts. Now, when I do this, I want to make sure that you understand that I am not trying to critique one gospel account against another for purposes of undermining the authority of the Bible. I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to show contradictions in the narrative of two of the gospels for purposes of trying to say that they are not authentic. I am up front going to tell you that I will show you a contradiction of chronology, meaning that one gospel tells you something happens this way in front of this incident, and the other gospel tells you that it happens like this. And so that is not meant for us to get to the end of that segment and go, oh, well, you can just close your Bible because if one guy thinks this happened this way and the other guy thinks this happened this way, well, you can't trust any of them. Who's telling the truth? That's not the purpose of critique. First of all, I don't believe that a chronological accounting, left, right, this came first, this came second, that is presented one way in one gospel and another way in another gospel is any reason for doubting either gospel. Actually, I would have a lot of trouble if the Gospels had every single thing exactly the same. Four different people telling the story over decades apart and not talking to each other when they tell the story. I expect some stuff gets shuffled out of order. To me, it lends to the authenticity, not to the disingenuousness nature of the writers. And so I would struggle if you went, man, every single thing is exactly the same. It sounds to me like four dudes sat in a room and went, what are you going to write? What are you going to write? What are you going to write? All right, let's all get our story straight. And so this exploration is in no way to undermine it, but it's, it's also to do this. It's to show a progression. And here's the reason. Mark is, I think, 99.99% of Bible scholars in the world believe Mark is the first gospel written. It's not the first gospel in your New Testament. That's Matthew. But Matthew's only the first gospel in your New Testament because he lays out the most immediate, cogent case for the genealogy of Jesus. The New Testament canon decided you needed to go right at he was born of him, 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 boom. So Matthew comes first. But Mark actually is penned first in front of all of the other Gospels. Most scholars would agree that, Ma- that uh, Matthew and Luke come somewhere tied for second. That Matthew and Luke's version of the events probably start to surface around the same time and that they are using Mark and what Mark said as a benchmark, pardon the pun, sort of a benchmark for how to write their Gospels. And so they take elements of Mark and drop it into their story, but they flesh it out. Several decades later comes John. It's why John's Gospel looks nothing like the other three. He doesn't need to write a fourth version of the same story. He needs to write a singular version of the same story. And so John's different from the moment it starts until the moment it ends. And we have whole different stories and a whole different perspective. And so That's why we get entire stories in John that don't appear anywhere else. We've got these different viewpoints of the same event happening. I believe that every now and then, if we peel back the layers and we take a look at the chronology, we can learn something about what I call the progressive nature of Revelation. Now, whether you realize it or not, you've been progressively growing in the way that you understand the Bible since the day you started reading the Bible. 
First time you read the Bible, it was just this big old jumbled book with old English words. You probably started reading in the King James Version, maybe your big family Bible on the coffee table. You read a couple stories, they bored you to death. You didn't read anymore until you had to when you got to Sunday school at some point. Maybe you came to Christ, you bought your own copy, you started struggling through it a little bit. You read the stories you liked, you skipped the ones you didn't like, you paid attention to the sermons that sounded interesting. Over the years, you've progressed. It's not just that you've grown up. You've had greater revelations of Jesus. As you've had greater revelations of Jesus, have you noticed that there's been times when your Bible came alive? Okay. Most everybody nodded or said yes. Why is it that your Bible came alive? What was wrong with it yesterday? Nothing was wrong with it, but there was something going on with us. And as we began to transform and fall in love with Him and realize who we are, the Bible started to pop. Stories that didn't matter to us mattered to us. Incredibly, as you grow up in your understanding of the Holy Spirit, stories change. What it said to you 10 years ago is not what it said to you 10 days ago. What it said to you 10 days ago isn't what it'll say to you tomorrow. How did that happen? They didn't change the story. It's not an updated version. They didn't add new characters. But somehow you're not who you were the first time you read it, and a spiritual progression begins to happen. You can probably look back on your own life and realize that you've had moments in your life that you didn't even realize God was working until 8, 10, 12 years later. Then you can look back a decade later and go, oh my goodness, how did I miss that? That was definitely God. Why did you miss it the first time? You weren't stupid, but your focus might have been elsewhere. And it took a little maturity in your life to look back and say, man, if I'd only known then what I know now, I'd have seen this then, I missed it. So I think that what happens is Mark lays out a case and then as the Gospels progress, something progressive happens. Let me show you what I mean. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Let me give you the story of the disciples and their call. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Very simple proclamation that Jesus calls Simon and Andrew his brother, and Mark makes it very clear. Immediately they listened. Sneak ahead to verse 29, and I want you to realize that we're in the same chapter, and according to the chronology of Mark, we're in the same immediate weekend. In verse 29, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue... They entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. By the way, Simon and Andrew, same Simon and Andrew that we just met on the boat, right? Okay. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. Verse 31. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. All right? I just want to make sure we have the chronology correctly. Early part of Mark, Jesus goes to the sea and he calls Simon and Andrew, Peter and Andrew. And he calls them to be disciples and immediately they follow him. No waste of time. Within 48 hours, Jesus comes to Peter's house and he lays his hands on Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever. And the fever breaks and she stands up completely healed. Miracle. Jesus has healed one of his disciples' mother-in-law in Mark chapter 1. Now go to Luke chapter 4, and I want you to remember what I just told you. I won't stay on it too long, but I want you to remember that Luke writes this several years later after Mark has already laid the story out. Luke comes along in Luke chapter 4, verse number 38. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, 
But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and served them. Sounds familiar, right? This is the last story we just read in Mark 1. Luke is simply repeating the exact same story, not quite word for word, but close enough that the same things are happening. We're in Simon Peter's house. Jesus is there. Simon Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Jesus heals her. She rises up. She begins to serve them. That's at the end of Luke chapter 4. Now go to Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 1, it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of the Lord. He stood by the lake of Gennesaret, saw two boats standing by the lake. Luke 5. Are we in Luke 5? Yeah, did I say that right? Okay, Luke 5. Uh, verse 2. He saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to push out a little bit from the land. He sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said, Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night. We've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and the net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. Now watch this. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. Or as Mark would have said it, From now on you will be fishers of men. And when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. The call of Peter and Andrew happen in Luke 5 with a different style than it happened in Mark 1. But I hope you realized a chronological problem. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and they leave their nets and they follow him. And then they go to Peter's house and Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. But years later, when Luke retells the story, trying to clean the events up a little bit, Luke shifts the story and flops the incident. Instead, now, instead of Jesus calling them and then going to Peter's house, now Jesus goes to Peter's house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And the next day, Jesus goes to Peter's work, his boat. And he blesses Peter with a net-breaking load of fish till the other boats are having to come and help him. And then Peter decides he's going to follow Jesus. So the question is, which is it? Does Jesus call Peter into the ministry and then heal his mother-in-law? Or does Jesus heal his mother-in-law and then call him into the ministry? Well, quite frankly, I'm not sure that it matters in the end of the, in the, end of the argument because Peter ends up in the ministry and the mother-in-law ends up healed. So if you ask the mother-in-law which one matters, she's going to say, I don't care. I used to have a fever. Now I don't. That's kind of like the blind man that goes, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. But one thing I do know, I once was blind, but now I see. Remember that story in the life of Jesus? That's the classic, don't get too heady with your theology. All I really care is I got my miracle, right? So I don't know if it's Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Aramaic. What I do know is I met Jesus. Okay, so I get it. It, at the end of the day, I'm not here to try to convince you one way or the other how this happened in Mark, because quite frankly, it doesn't matter, and I don't care. So why am I bringing it up? Because I actually believe that Luke does it on purpose. 
It's just my belief. I believe Luke does it on purpose for the simple reason of Romans chapter 2, verse 4. So go to Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and this is really where we get started tonight. All of that was an introduction (laughs) to this thought. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you despise the riches of God's goodness and His forbearance and His long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. The word that your New King James or your King James or whatever other translation might say goodness, but some of your translations will actually read like the NRSV, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And the reason for that is because the word goodness is the same Greek word translated kindness, God's Kindness leads you to repentance. Now, without getting too heady, what's Paul asking them? Do you guys struggle with how kind God is, how patient God is? Don't you know that the kindness of God is being poured on you so you will repent? Greek word, metanoia, which means change your mind. Don't you know that God is being kind to you so you'll change your mind about Him? Now, what must their mindset have been? If God needs to be kind to them in order to change their mind, it seems to me he's writing to a bunch of people in the Roman church. It's a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And he's just spent most of Romans chapter one trying to establish the guilt of both Jew and Gentile. Gentiles are guilty. Jews are guilty. People with the law are guilty. People without the law are guilty. And he goes, God is being good to all of you so that you'll change your mind about him. Because whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you got a bad picture of daddy. And with a bad picture of dad, you're not going to trust him. Because why would you trust him? Because you don't trust him. Because he might be angry at you and he might be out to get you and he might be ready to squash you. Don't you know that God is patient with you and long-suffering with you and kind with you for one reason? He is not kind to you because you've been kind to him. He is not kind to you as a way of buying you off. Or buttering you up. Or it's the big cosmic spiritual setup. I'll be good to them and then I'll knock the props out from under them when they fail. God is not being kind to you because you earned it. Because you've been kind to others. Therefore, God is now kind to you. Paul says, no, God is being kind to you for one basic reason. God saw what you thought of him. And poured his kindness out on you so you'd change your mind about him. I'm being good to you for the, for the sole reason that I'm good. And I hope I can be so good to you that you'll change your mind about what you think of me. That if you're mad at me, you won't be mad at me anymore. If you don't trust me, you'll start to trust me. If you're angry with me, if you're scared of me, you won't be scared of me. You'll drop the fear that you have for me. And the kindness of God leads men to repent. Why do I... Why did we do 10 minutes of Peter on a boat and Peter's mother-in-law? It's because I believe that when Mark lays out the story and in the, in the early 2nd century Eusebius, which is one of our very first Christian writers, I mean, he writes in the early 2nd century. And he quotes 
first-generation Christians who saw the 12 disciples. And Eusebius tells us, this is where we get this little piece of information. Eusebius tells us that Mark wrote his gospel from memory, having had conversations with Peter. So Mark conversed with Peter, and at the end, after Peter's death, most likely, Mark decides, I've got to write this down. I, I talked to Peter. I can't die without writing down what Peter said. And so Mark's a little disjointed. His gospel's a little bit all over the place, but he lays them out. And then when the Lukes and the Matthews of the world come along not long later and decide to try to clean it up and work it out properly, I believe there's a spiritual progression in the way they've seen Christ, in the way they've encountered the Holy Spirit. And I think Luke makes a change to this gospel in, in one very basic way. You see, in Mark's version, Jesus calls Peter, he answers the call, Jesus goes to his house, he heals his mother-in-law. But Luke looks at it and goes, that's not the way it happened. Because what really happens is Jesus comes along and heals his mother-in-law first. And it's the healing of his mother-in-law last night that tenders Peter's heart the next day when Jesus shows up at his place of work and Peter remembers the miracle that he did undeservedly at my house last night. And Jesus follows that miracle up with a miracle of a boatload of fish. And at that point, Peter, according to Luke, because Mark never tells you all this, according to Luke, Peter falls on his face in front of Jesus on his own boat, falls on his face and goes, I'm not worthy of this. I'm a sinner. He uses this word. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy for this kind of love. And the love that Jesus pours out on him is so great that Peter drops his job. He leaves his store. <laughs> And he just walks out and he goes, wherever Jesus goes, I'm going to go. And that kind of devotion doesn't happen like that. I know we want to think that it does, but it doesn't. That kind of devotion happens at the end of a revelation of the goodness of God and the kindness of God. I think Luke is cleaning it up to say this. Jesus was kind in Peter's house and the kindness of God to Peter and his mother-in-law is exactly what softened Peter the next day so that when Jesus comes up and go come follow me Peter doesn't say are you crazy I'm gonna come follow you I don't even know who you are but no he got a little bit of history God's been kind to him he's watched a miracle happen and God being kind to him and him watching a miracle happen is what breaks him is what makes him the person that he is that day on the deck of that boat what leads Peter to the revelation that you and I read together in Luke chapter 5 that said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I want to I just make sure that we understand. I know I read it quickly, but you've read it a thousand times in your life, that story. So let me remind you of what didn't happen in case you missed it. Jesus did not come on the boat and go, Hey, Peter, I see how you've been treating your other fishermen. I know you ripped off a couple of your workers last week. I see how you've been stealing money on the side, not reporting it. Peter, I see how you treat your friends and your enemy. None of that happens. So I want to ask you, how did Peter figure out he was a sinful man? No Ten Commandments were preached. Jesus didn't give a sermon on sin. Jesus does not try to put Peter under conviction. No praise and worship songs designed to soften his emotions 
followed by a well-worded sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God hanging over a fire pit by a spider web, and we are but one sin away from dropping off into the abyss of darkness and having God judge us forever. Those are the kind of sermons that have fired people up for a long, long time. Boy, they like that kind of preaching. That's good stuff. Tell it like it is, brother. Preach them into hell so they can get saved. Jesus didn't do any of that. Instead, he goes to Peter's house and he heals a member of his family. Peter didn't ask for it. Peter didn't earn it. Peter didn't pay for it. Just Jesus being Jesus. Jesus stops by your house, you can expect some kindness. Good stuff's going to happen. Who's coming to the dinner party tonight? Jesus. Oh, boy. People didn't say, oh, boy, got to hide the magazines. (laughs) Got to put away the account books. Got to, no. There was never a fear. He's going to come and expose my darkest secrets. Instead, oh, Jesus is coming. Break out the perfume. You're going to want to pour it on his feet. You get in the presence of this guy, it's going to... You never has a man spoke like this man. Get ready. And so that night before where Jesus... In fact, Mark's version is Jesus doesn't only heal Peter's mother-in-law. They open the door, and at the end of Sabbath, the whole town comes to Jesus to be healed. Peter sits there and watches this happen at his house. What an honor. So that next day when Jesus comes to his boat... Peter's ripe, man, he's ready. But Jesus doesn't expose Peter's sin. Do you think Peter has some sin? Guys, Peter's the one that ends up denying the Lord Jesus. He carries his sin all the way through the Gospels. What convinces Peter on the deck of that boat? I'm a sinful man, you got to depart from me. I present to you all the only thing Jesus did was be good to him. That's it. Jesus was good to him, kind to him, and blessed him. And in the goodness and the kindness and the blessing, Peter realizes through revelation, I don't deserve any of this. I truly believe we can do better at exposing the world to a place of repentance than hammering people's sins over their head. Because if you take notes from Jesus... The best approach to bring people to their knees and confess that they need God is the goodness of God leads men to repentance. The kindness of God leads people to realize that they absolutely need to change their mind about God. I'd like to see a revival in the church of the kindness of God coming out of God's people. The kindness of God coming out of his children to the point that it's safe to bring people into the church because the Jesus they're going to see, the God they're going to see looks like the Jesus that heals Peter's mother-in-law without payment. The kindness they're going to see is the Jesus that shows up and blesses him with net loads of fish without requirement. To where people begin to realize that they have absolutely a need for God that is so powerful that they will expose their true self to God and say, here's what I really am. I want that Jesus that loves me that much to take what I really am. Jesus' style is so impressive that he realize, he, he, he teaches us something if we'll pay attention. 
Um, I, I think we ought to be careful when we invite people to our stuff. It's like, I want you to come to my church or whatever. Um, the reason we ought to be careful is not because of what they're going to hear. We ought to be careful that we don't invite people to our church that we haven't invited to our table. Because we're bad about that. We want to circumvent relationship, just get them saved. That's kind of the American Christian way. I don't really want a relationship with them until they're saved. So what I'm going to do is just invite them to church, invite them to revival, invite them to Bible study. If they can get saved, then we could be good friends. Jesus did it the other way around. Jesus went, okay, I'm going to go to their house. We're going to have a meal together. I'm going to invite them over. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to bless them, heal them, and bring them a miracle. And I know the kindness of my dad's going to wear on them to where when it's the appropriate time, they're going to fall on the deck of their own personal boat and go, depart from me, I'm a sinner. And then when I ask them to join what I'm doing, they can say yes or they can say no, but they cannot say I wasn't kind. And they cannot say I wasn't good. And so many said to Jesus, yes, let me come follow you. So I think we ought to make it a habit in the American church of having people at our table before we have them at our church. Because if we'll have them at our table, they'll feel welcome at our church. A lot of times we only want to have them at our church because that's, a, that's a, a way to circumvent relationship with them until they're morally approved. So there's a bunch of stuff in their life I don't really agree with. I don't want to be caught dead with them. But boy, if they get saved... You know, they'd be great friend. So let's get them in church, try to get them cleaned up. Then we'll be relational with them. It's so opposite the way Jesus did it. I mean, he's calling zealots and tax collectors to be disciples. You're not supposed to have these people in your posse. Jesus knew if I could bring a couple of zealots and, and tax collectors into my posse and be kind to them, they might not be zealots and tax collectors anymore. I don't know. Maybe we could change the world if we just love people. That was kind of Jesus' style. Maybe we could change something if we just poured ourselves into people exactly like they are, and I'll pour myself into them exactly like I am. Paul, when he writes to the Romans, he gets that concept. And no, Paul had not read Mark and Paul had not read Luke because Mark and Luke haven't been written down when Paul writes Romans. But the Jesus of Mark and Luke was alive and well in Paul. That that Jesus would be good to a murderer. That that Jesus would be patient with a pious, pharisaical religious-minded, performance-based man like Saul, that that Jesus would anoint him and bless him and prosper him. And Paul goes, don't you know that the goodness of God led me to change my mind? That he's a good Jesus. That he's been nothing but good to me in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my turmoil. Let me ask you what this, or let me try to answer what should be the easiest question for us to start with, which is, well, what would it look like? Because we all like practical stuff. What would it look like for me to show the kindness of God? And we almost always have to have some sort of visual illustration. And Jesus understood that too. Let me show you Luke chapter 6. Go with me there real quick. You're already in Luke 5, or well, you're probably in Romans 2, but Luke 5 is where we were. Go right back towards that story. But go to the sixth chapter of Luke and watch as Jesus, Luke shares the Sermon on the Plain, Pretty much the same, almost retelling of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Luke's version, chapter 6, listen to verse 34 and 35. And if you lend to those from, you, from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. 
That's a good question. I mean, if you're just going to get, give to people hoping you get a return, that's not much of a gift, is it? But love, and then Jesus takes a left turn, verse 35, in the most, this is our least favorite Jesus verse in Christianity, <laughs> I think. This is the one people don't put on a bumper sticker. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. The word hoping is really better translated expecting. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Look at that sentence. He is kind to who? Who gets the kindness of God? Well, according to Jesus, the people best qualified for the kindness of God are unthankful and evil people. Well, that's not very fun. I mean, unthankful and evil people, they don't deserve the kindness of God. Jesus has flipped everything on its head in this message. He said, listen, it's easy to just loan to people you know you're going to get something back from. That's like being good to people you know are going to be good to you. That's, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. He goes, you don't even have to follow me to do that. He goes, you could have done that without meeting me, right? You can do that. The way of the world is that. Jesus doesn't even fully condemn it. He just tells his people that ain't what it's like to follow me. It's not as if he says it doesn't happen. He says that's not what it means to follow me. When you follow me, we don't do things expecting things to be done to us. He said, instead, we're going to love the people that... Why does he say enemies? Because if you love your enemies, you're not expecting anything back from your enemy. Your enemy's not going to do anything good to you. You love your enemies, you do good, you don't expect anything in return. Your reward's great, you'll be the sons of the Most High. Jesus isn't saying that you come into the family of God by doing good. He's saying if you want to look like dad's kids, love like dad loves. If you want to look like dad's kids, be kind like dad is kind. In other words, live like the sons and daughters of God. If you live like the sons and daughters of God, you're going to act like your father. How's your father act? Okay, I need some very specific instructions. Who should I be kind to? Jesus goes, okay, good question. He's kind to the unthankful and the evil. There you go. Oh, well, you know, I don't want to be kind to the unthankful and the evil. That's not going to do any good. And Jesus goes, welcome to following me, where we are kind to the unthankful evil. He said, I just told you that if all you do is be kind to people that are going to be kind to you, you could have done that without meeting Jesus. And so I want to say to you, if you're just going to be good to people that are good to you, you don't need Jesus for this. You could have done that by just being a principled person in the world. I didn't need to meet Jesus. I just try to make the world a little bit better place. But Jesus goes, we're better than that. He goes, we're sons of our Most High Father and the sons of our Most High Father. The kindness is extended to the evil and the unthankful. So let me just say it this way. Without, there's no pressure on you for how to go live it. It's you realizing, this is the core of this. It's you realizing you are the unthankful and the evil. And that's why God's been good to you. Ah, see, that's a better place to start. It's not, I just need to go find some unthankful and evil people. That's easy. Everywhere you turn is unthankful and evil people. But start with you. Here's the great revelation. God's been good to me, and I've been so unthankful. God's been good to me, and I've often been so evil. And he didn't stop being good to me because I was unthankful and I was evil. Instead, sometimes he even turned up the kindness. I'm 15 years past it, but I can look back and realize right there, I was a snake. And God was being so good to me. I can look back on that moment months ago, weeks ago. I was so unthankful 
But God was giving me everything. I can look back at that period in my life and I thought it was me. I remember feeling like, boy, I figured something out. And now I look back and go, I was an idiot. I didn't figure anything out. God was just being unfairly good to me. Got any of those moments? Man, I got bushels of them. I got so many moments where I go, why was he being so good to me? I was stupid. The stuff I was thinking and saying and doing and the things I felt about God or the world or my neighbor, why would God put up with that? Because he's kind to the unthankful and the evil. And I go, well, you know, that's not fair. God's kind to the unthankful and evil. But it really feels good once I realize I'm the unthankful and the evil. Once I realize that's me, then that's a great place to start. If we struggle with our stuff in this, I think what we need this is a good place to try to land. If we're struggling with our, with our issues, whatever they might be, one of the things that we need is a fresh taste of the goodness of God. You don't realize that God has been good to you and is being good to you independent of you earning it or deserving it or paying for it. But that's easy for us sometimes to forget. And we need a fresh taste of God's goodness. And how do you get a fresh taste of God's goodness? Let me, let me take you to that famous Peter, First Peter, that same guy that we just saw on the deck of a boat saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Go to his first letter. First Peter Chapter 2, and this will be my final text tonight. I, I've read a lot of scripture to you and told you a lot of stories and carried you left to right and frontwards and backwards, but I want to try to land on solid footing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby or that you may, this is technically that Greek word, that you may grow up to salvation. Some of your translations might say that. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The word we've been using tonight for kindness is the Greek word krestos. That's the word used right here. It's the same word in Romans 2, 4. The goodness of God, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. If you've tasted that God is kind. Okay, let's work backwards. Because this is one of those verses that you really need to work backwards. Let's start in verse 3, work our way back to verse 1. In verse 3, if you could taste the kindness of God like a baby drinks milk. That's verse 2. Here's verse 1. Here's what you would do. You'd lay aside all the junk. The stuff that's bothering you so bad, it's only bothering you so bad because you haven't been drinking God's kindness. Ooh, there we go. So you want people to live right? You want people to drop all their garbage? Stop sending like crazy? So do I. I don't want to live in a world where people live like fools. Kill themselves on sin. I don't want to live in that world. Who wants to live in that world? Okay, what are we going to do? Let's preach hell hot and heaven sweet to them. Let's make a bunch of stuff illegal. And when they break that law, just throw them in prison. Let God burn them up someday. Let's fix this problem with some new stuff. Or let's show people the kindness of God. Let's get them so interested in it, they drink it like a baby needs milk. And the more of it they drink, the more they lay aside all the junk we don't like. 
So instead of asking them to my church and then being their friend, what if I asked them to dinner and didn't worry about whether they ever came to my church? And after we've built a relationship, if they want to come to my church, great. Maybe they don't. But I'm kind to them, and I'm good to them. And maybe kindness is all they really needed anyway in life. Maybe nobody's ever been good to them. Do you know how many people you cross paths with every day and nobody ever been good to them? And nobody ever been kind to them? Nobody. And that's why they're bitter. That's why they hate the world. That's why they're ready to fight all the time. Nobody's kind to them. And then when they cry out about no one being kind to them, they get told to shut up. They get told all the reasons why they need to be quiet. And then we wonder why people lose their top. Things go crazy in their mind. Jesus tried to teach us this 2,000 years ago. He goes, God is kind to the people you won't be kind to. Start there. The unthankful and the evil. Let that kindness rub off. Do you know where else this word shows up? in the Greek that it, we don't see it in the English because of our translation. You remember this? Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is crestos, and my burden is light. Let me read it again. For my yoke is kindness, and my burden is light. And we translated it easy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the word is goodness and kindness. My yoke is kindness and goodness and my, and my burden is light. Why does that move me so much? You know what a yoke is for? You put the yoke on with Jesus. Two oxen are yoked together to do a job so they do the same job. Jesus said, yoke with me. The thing that binds us together is my kindness and my goodness. I'm going to be kind to you and I'm going to be good to you so that you're kind and you're good to those around you. And if we get to the end of this, you go, I still don't know what it would look like to be kind and be good, then start there with your prayer. Start there every day. Father, you're kind to me and you're good to me. Give me a fresh revelation of it. I want to drink that like a baby drinks milk. If I can drink that, I'll start to drop the bunch of junk that's going on in my life. And Father, if I could ever get a revelation of your kindness and your goodness, I'd know what it meant to work with Jesus because that's your yoke. And Father, if I ever knew what it meant to work with Jesus, I'd know what it meant to love like Jesus. So Father, I just need a revelation of Jesus. I need a revelation of your kindness and your goodness because I want to be your kindness and your goodness in the earth. Guys, I don't know from a more noble prayer for us to pray as followers of Jesus. Uh, we can go out and expose sin. Exposing sin is easy. That's the lowest hanging fruit in the world. Finding what's wrong with people and telling them. You're going to be a really popular person, too, in the world. <laughs> Here's the really ironic thing, is that you will be a pariah in the world if you treat people that way, but you'll be famous if you do it in the pulpit. You didn't see that coming, did you? That was a left turn. That's true. You can be famous by pointing out sin in the pulpit because we think it's the job of people that are pointing people to God. And the reason that we think that is because we're watching preachers, but we're not watching Jesus. Go watch Jesus point people to the Father. He heals their mother-in-law and gives them a net-breaking load of fish, and it drops them on the deck of their boat. And they go, why are you being so good to me? I don't deserve any of this. And he goes, why don't you come follow me? I'll show you more. I'll show you how to be a better fisherman. And Peter leaves his boat and follows Jesus. He goes, whatever you just did to me in the last 48 hours, I want more. I'll come follow you. If that's the goodness of God, sign me up. 
I want the goodness of God. That's the kindness of God? Sign me up. I want the kindness of God. The kindness of God leads men to repentance. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the kindness of God. Haven't you been shown the kindness of God? I've been shown the kindness of God so much it's embarrassing. Really, I mean, I, don't, I can't even describe all of the moments of the kindness of God. I'm not this smart or this lucky. That's what I tell people. How'd you guys pull that off? I go, I'm not this smart or this lucky. It's just a kind God. I've just tried to lean into His kindness as much as I can. I've missed it a lot. A lot of times, rather than lean into it, I pulled out my spiritual wallet and tried to pay Him back. That was a disaster. I'd try to pay God back for His kindness. I'll do this, 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 and this for you. I didn't need to pay him back. I just needed to repeat it to someone else. Part of the reason that I look at you, this group, in this room, the way that I look at you, is because of the kindness of God that has been placed upon me. Because he's been kind to me, I'm kind to you. I don't know if you deserve it or not. I don't know what kind of people you are outside of Chapin Friday night. You might be the snakes of Chapin. (laughs) I have no idea. I don't think you are. But honestly, I don't, I don't know. And I know I say, that, I say that humorously, but you've got to understand my point of view. I don't know. I don't really know how you live your lives. I don't know how you treat your next door neighbor. I don't know how you act in public. I'm not, I'm not trying to display the goodness of God to you because I think you people have earned it or because you deserve it. I'm trying to display the goodness and the kindness of God to you because it's the only God I know anymore. I'm not going to drive over here or spend any time with you and display a God I'm not having a revelation of. He's a good God and he's kind to me. And I will quit preaching the gospel and find something else to do if I have to present a God that is unkind and less than good. Because I, would only, I can only preach the gospel of the God I've had a revelation of. Everything else would be a lie. So I don't know if you deserve this or not. But I know that like me, you are the unthankful and the evil. And I hope you understand that's not a judgment call. That's not, I'm saying that. That's all of us saying to God, why are you so good to me? And finding ourselves on the deck of our own boat going, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't deserve this. And he goes, that's okay. Come follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. You have no idea your destiny. Isn't he a good God? Father, thank you tonight for such a beautifully sweet moment in this room of the revelation of your goodness. I am so thankful that you have been patient with this unthankful, evil man. That so many times in my life when I thought I was doing it myself or I had finally figured something out or I was going to pay God back, I was going to show God what kind of a man I could be. You have been so good to me in spite of myself. I have changed my mind a thousand times and plan on changing my mind a thousand more because your kindness is what yokes me to Jesus. 
and your kindness has led me to change my mind. I pray that it does that in this room and that it does it for whomever watches or listens. Maybe years after I'm gone from this earth and someone wonders if it's true that God could be kind and they listen to this sermon. The power of your Holy Spirit transcends time and space. Show that person, wherever they are, the kindness of God. In Jesus' name, amen.